0: Hello and welcome to Disneyversity. The podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalog, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Encanto, seeing how they stand up today, how they push the boundaries of animation shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influence pop culture at large. (laughs) A brief disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney+, so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while I try as much as possible not to talk about Bruno, I'm not your Disneyversity lecturer. No, this week I'm a jolly, psychically gifted pig desperately trying to avoid a sticky end as we watch through 60 films and counting. Guiding me to safety is a sword-swinging animation academic with a touch of destiny about him, ready to ward off any evil demons or dragons in the name of achieving heroic status. I refer as ever to the one and only Dr. Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Sam, how are you doing?
1: I'm good. I'm pretty busy. It's January. That's a busy time for academics, so the demons and dragons that I've been fighting these last couple of weeks have been piles and piles of undergraduate essays. Um, not that that isn't fun, and not that I don't love giving them all the due diligence and attention that they deserve, but uh, it's a lot.
0: He slays demons. He slays dragons. He slays dissertations. <laughs> the that three does. Does. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh, so you're in the middle of the thick of it, and and off the back of the Boss Baby Symposium and the Shrek Symposium, it's a busy time to be you.
1: It's all go, it's all go, honestly. And The Black Cauldron, I had to watch that. I had to read about the novels that inspired The Black Cauldron, which is... It's (laughs) It's a lot of books. It's a lot of books. It's dense. It's Mm. a dense mythos, which ordinarily would be right up my street but there's something about having to digest that and it's entirely in the course of a couple of days that uh, i'm not sure if i've succeeded in doing that
0: meanwhile i've been in my job having we don't talk about bruno from encanto going around my head on a solid loop for like weeks now i don't know if we've discussed it all on the podcast well we talked about Encanto a bit but I interviewed the directors of Encanto for Empire and we talked all about so many things in the film go to wherever you get your Empire podcast for more about that in the future but I ended up writing a piece about We Don't Talk About Bruno because it's number one in the charts that's mad It's Disney's first number one single. It's bigger than Let It Go. So yeah, I've done a lot of writing about that song, using quotes from the interviews with Byron Howard, Jared Bush, and Therese Castro-Smith. But as a result of that, just constantly in a loop in my head, seven foot frame, rats along his back. I can't escape it.
1: Yeah, that is me, exactly the same. And it wasn't, I didn't walk away from the movie with that entire song stuck in my head, but as soon as it started, basically as soon as I saw that it hit the charts, I was like... Oh man, I need to I need to revisit that, and I've just not stopped revisiting it <laughs> uh, to the chagrin of my partner. Well, actually, I think she she enjoys when we stick it on every now and then, but when I'm literally just walking around the house going like, "I grew up afraid of Bruno stuttering and a stumbling, I could always hear him stuttering sort of and a mumbling, I associate him with the sound of falling sand." It's it's hard to live with, I
0: think. Does Lid take it personally because she's got a seven foot frame and rats along her back? <laughs> Anyway, before we get sidetracked, have you been excited to get to The Black Cauldron on this podcast? Because this is one, again, we're in the dark age, this is an age I knew nothing about. This film has a real reputation. And it's one that doesn't get talked about that much. So how hyped are you for The Black Cauldron?
1: Yeah, I'm excited for The Black Cauldron. When you suggested doing this podcast, there was a couple of, like, immediately when I thought, oh, we could do a podcast looking at all the Disney movies. And several movies just, like, flashed up in my brain of, oh, that's going to be really fun. That's going to be really fun. Like, a series of movie posters appearing before my eyes, thinking, God, I want to talk to Ben in detail about that. One of them was The Three Caballeros. (laughs) Of course, you boys. Another one we're going to be getting into in a couple of weeks and Ooh. yeah the other one was the black cauldron it was definitely in, in probably the top at least the top 5 of oh yeah okay we need to dig into this some more because <laughs> it does it has a reputation i think whether you've seen it or not you kind of know it as one of the darkest scariest disney movies and also this was the biggest bomb of the dark age it's a bit of a spoiler isn't it but this was um the low point probably of all time in terms of the actual Disney feature animation studio, in terms of how big a movie could bomb. Wow. So yeah, it does have a reputation, but not a lot of people have seen it. It was out of circulation for a long time, so we talked a lot about how when it comes to the less prestigious Disney movies like... Robin Hood and the Aristocats, a lot of people our age have seen them because they were out on VHS when we were kids and they were very accessible. The Black Cauldron was not. The Black Cauldron was not released on home video for about 15 years after it came out. They held that back for a long time, so it is one of the more obscure Disney films and also one of the most notorious.
0: Yeah, I don't know if I'm getting ahead of myself here, but this is one that as I was watching it and knowing that it's not that well known, I was like, why haven't they remade this in live action? Why isn't David Lowry of Pete's Dragon and the Green Knight fame and now he's doing Peter Pan and Wendy? I think he's out this year. But this seems like perfect David Lowry fare uh, to do a live action Disney remake thing because why don't you remake the ones that didn't do that well first time around and give them another shot, which is kind of what he did with Pete's
1: Dragon. And even after, like, yes, we're getting the whole spate of Disney live-action remakes now, but we also had, in the aftermath of Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter, lots of literary fantasy epics getting adapted from the Chronicles of Narnia all the way to whatever the hell the Bridge of Terabithia is. Uh, and it's just a bit of a surprise that Black Cauldron, the Chronicles of Pradane wasn't part of that cohort back then. Yeah.
0: I mean speaking of which are you a, are you a big fantasy guy I've always had you down as more of like a sci-fi person robots and transformers and marvel and comic books and stuff what's your swords and sorcery feelings
1: Yeah I'm not a fantasy guy I'm not a big like Lord of the Rings guy at all I Boo. did get into Game of Thrones Okay. So I'm, I'm a guy who I love law and I love learning all the different characters names and their relationships to each other and where they come from and what they represent and who the great grandparents are and where they live and everything, you know, but Fantasy, for some reason, slightly eludes me. I can't quite put my finger on it. That's why I'm saying I found it quite difficult just to memorise all the different characters and settings from the wider Chronicles of Predean universe, the series of books on which the Black Cauldron was based. It's like if these characters lived in space or if they ran around New York wearing like spandex and capes, I would know everything about them and I'd be deeply into it. But for some reason, fantasy slightly... I don't know, I just can't get to grips with it.
0: It's funny you say about if it was set in space, because as we'll talk about at points, hey, if this sword was a laser sword, I think it's pretty significant that this is a post-Star Wars movie. But anyway, let's dig into all of this. That's enough from us, we're all sat down, the register's complete, and it's time for class to begin. So this time, after the heartbreaking divisions between foxes and hounds, we're going goth as hell with 1985's horror-tinged dark fantasy adventure...
1: The Black Cauldron. Can you put in like some thunder and lightning? Ooh.
0: <laughs> okay, Sam, I've got a tricky task for you. I imagine there's maybe quite a few people listening to this episode who haven't seen The Black Cauldron, because as we said, not many people have. Uh, hey, it's only like 75 minutes if you're going to watch it on Disney+, so it's a pretty speedy watch. But there is a lot going on in this film, to the best of your abilities, can you sum up the plot, the slightly incoherent plot, shall we say, of The Black Cauldron.
1: Okay, I'll give it a go. So, an elderly wizard sends an unassuming young lad on an epic quest to stop a powerful artifact falling into the hands of an evil Dark Lord and his forces. No, it's not the One Ring, it's a psychic (laughs) pig named Hen Wen who can reveal the location of the legendary Black Cauldron. So, teaming up with a band of misfits, a fellowship of the pig, if you will, farm boy Taran must destroy the Black Cauldron before the Horned King can use it to create an undead army. There we go. So, yeah,
0: there are some very familiar echoes. Even if you've not seen this film, it's Lord of the Rings with a psychic pig. (laughs) It is! I mean, if I'd have known that earlier, I would have seen
1: this film a long time ago.
0: What a hook! It gets you straight in. As soon as you hear that, that's all you need to know.
1: It's the elevator pitch. If only they could have conveyed that to the movie going public of 1985.
0: <laughs> One pig to rule them all. <laughs> uh, okay, so as you mentioned, the Pradane novels, the Chronicles of Pradane Kind of a big deal in the world of fantasy. Uh, What do we need to know about the Prudane novels and how did they get onto Disney's radar?
1: So they were written in the 1960s, there's five of them, by a guy called Lloyd Alexander, an American who was very influenced by Welsh mythology, so these stories loosely adapt those myths, mainly taking names of characters and stuff like that, and indeed most of those characters who are named after specific figures from Welsh mythology don't making it at the movie, uh, so forget about those. Forget about all of that. This movie is based on the first two books. It's a mashup of the first two predean novels. The book of three is the first novel, and the second novel is the Black Cauldron. And these were acquired in 1971 by the Walt Disney Company. Pre-production started in 1973 originally planning for a 1980 release
0: right and it, the film comes out in 1985 so this oh, was yeah. hanging around for a long time i am sensing a troubled production sam we love a troubled production on this show
1: this was i mean we were talking about fox and the howl was a troubled production it was don bluth led a mass exodus taken half the animation staff with them knocked that thing back by six months but this was way worse than that like things kept stacking up obstacles kept being placed in the way of this movie right up until the 11th hour so when it was first delayed from 1980 to 1984 originally so in 1978 they delayed it by four years and the news report from the time said that this was because the new crop of young animators that the studio has spent six years acquiring are not yet competent enough to handle its complexities
0: Ooh, internal burns self-own
1: Yeah, so this was particularly because there's a lot of realistic human characters in this, and that's something Disney haven't really dealt with since, arguably, Sleeping Beauty. Maybe the Sword and the Stone, I suppose, more recently, but they're slightly more caricatured than what we get in the Black Cauldron, and there's a lot of special effects, etc. So, the thought they'd start the animators off with something easier, like the Fox and the Hound. So, we're already at the point where these guys would feel like they're just barely competent enough to take on something like the black cauldron we're all ready to start production after fox and the hound is nearly finished and then half of them leave so (laughs) we are further back than square one at this point so the remaining animators and a few more people who'd been like promoted or who'd finished training during this period were kind of vaguely ready to start the black cauldron and a lot of them were really excited about it A lot of people said that this was going to be their next Snow White. People were talking about this as if it was going to be the big coming-out party for these new animators who'd been practising on things like The Rescuers and The Fox and The Hound. But this was a hugely ambitious movie, which was going to be, effectively, the start of what you might decide to call a Disney renaissance. That was the idea, that this was going to kick-start a new era of lavish budgets, high-concept stories, detailed animation appealing to adult, teen, and child demographics, and exhibiting the incredible talent of these animators who've been trained for this for years.
0: Yeah, I think it's really interesting he- hearing you say that, because we'll get into this in the main discussion, but I do think you feel that level of ambition in this film. For all its flaws, I think the animation is really beautiful, and there's some really striking effects work in it. It does feel like they're, they're pushing again. But I can imagine that caused lots of issues. I I wanted to ask, so Ted Berman and Richard Rich are the directors on this one. They were two of the directors who were on Fox and the Hound, along with Art Stevens.
1: Uh, but Art Stevens isn't on this one, so w- where did he go? So basically, Ron Miller, the current head of the Disney studio, son-in-law of Walt Disney, who we kind of introduced to our sprawling epic narrative on the last episode, he didn't think Art Stevens was up to the task, because Art Stevens was kind of one of the the older set, he wanted a younger perspective on this. So, John Musker, later to direct incredibly important movies like The Little Mermaid and Aladdin, he was initially assigned as director here. And then Miller thought that he wasn't up with the task, replaced him with Richard Rich and Ted Berman as soon as they finished The Fox and the Hound. So we've already got a bit of a revolving door, both in terms of the animators working on this, in terms of the directors working on this. But none of these guys were really the auteur behind the movie The Black Cauldron. The most significant voice behind the scenes on this movie was Joe Hill, who's credited as producer on this movie. And he'd been at Disney for a while. He was a special effects animator predominantly who worked on live action movies like Mary Poppins and Bedknobs and Broomsticks. And Miller put him in charge of this movie because he thought he had the kind of personality that would help him corral all of these disparate voices and elements into one cohesive product. So Hale finalised the story. He kind of finalised, shaped the tone. He solidified many of the characters that they were using. And overall just helped the studio to recover from things like the Don Bluth walkout, those setbacks, reconciling the creative differences that had emerged under these various directors. And up until very late in the day, everybody thought this was going exceedingly well. Despite all of these setbacks, Ron Miller was a huge fan of this project. Even Don Bluth was really excited about this project before he departed. Everyone thought this was going to be the film that was going to take animated features to the next level, surpassing even Walt Disney's masterpieces, bringing in older audiences as well. And then, two months before this movie was set to release, Ron Miller was ousted from the Disney company after being CEO for less than a year. Oh, he, he was ousted, he was booted. He was gone. There was a Ooh. coup led by... Again, this is very Game of Thrones, led by Walt Disney's nephew. Oh, man. War of the Disneys. Ron Miller's cousin-in-law, Roy Disney Jr. And he thought that Miller was running the company into the ground. He was very unhappy with the way that he was operating the studio. So he organized a coup among the shareholders, among the board. Miller is gone, he's replaced by outsiders, it's the first time that outside forces have been brought in from other studios at the very top of the Disney hierarchy, it's the first time the Disney company has been run by people with no real personal connection to Walt Disney. So he brought in Frank Wells as COO, and he brought in Michael Eisner as CEO, Eisner being the former president of Paramount. There's a lot of names here, but these are important people, okay? (laughs) Yes. Yeah.
0: Eisner is a surname that I've definitely heard of in relation to Disney.
1: Yeah, so see see if you can keep track. We've got Frank Wells, we've got Michael Eisner. Michael Eisner is the CEO. He brings in his right hand man, a name that I would hope you would have heard of, Jeffrey Alexander Katzenberg. Hamilton. <laughs> oh gonna my need God, right hand man! <laughs> if we could rewrite the musical Hamilton to be about Jeffrey Katzenberg, I think that would work really, really well.
0: He is Jeffrey Katzenberg.
1: <laughs> do you know who jeffrey katzenberg is no <laughs> okay this is far off in the future but i feel like this is enough information to keep you tantalized and we'll see how we'll get from where he is now to where he is in the future right jeffrey katzenberg is the man responsible for shrek
0: oh so shrek is your boss but he is shrek's boss <laughs> Wow.
1: Yeah, exactly. Jeffrey Katzenberg is Mr. Shrek, and he got his start in the animation world as the president of the Walt Disney Studio. So, Michael Eisner and Frank Wells run the company. Jeffrey Katzenberg is who Eisner brings in from Paramount to run the actual film studio, which includes within it animation. Are we following?
0: Okay, I'm with you. So in terms of those memes where it's like the domino effect, so Lloyd Alexander writes the Predain novels, that's one of the tiny dominoes, and one of the massive dominoes at the end is we get Shrek
1: exactly this is how
0: history works
1: right so ron miller was all ready to release as in like in two months he was ready to release this movie which a lot of people at the studio thought was going to save disney was going to reinvigorate the the studio reinvigorate the company totally change their brand and then these new guys come in and these are hollywood people these are people who in theory know what they're doing they would had lots of hits at paramount so they're very interested in this Black Cauldron movie and how this is panning out, right? It's about to drop. How's it going? So they'll have some test screenings, and these test screenings end with children running screaming out of a room. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I can see why. If it's anything like what we got, I can see why children were very terrified.
1: So Katzenberg isn't totally happy with this. Basically his first day in the animation building. This is not a guy who has had any experience with animation before He comes in and he demands that they edit the movie He says we'll have to cut stuff We'll have to take the b-roll and splice that in to replace these like really violent shots that have been scaring kids This is not what you do in animation. There's no b-roll in animation You storyboard it and then you animate it and then it's finished, right? Generally, that's how it happens. So, Joe Hill, the producer, says, This isn't how animation works. Animated films can't be edited. Katzenberg replies, That's ridiculous. You can edit anything. I'll show you. He <laughs> storms into the editing bay with the film and starts physically cutting it and splicing it himself. What? <laughs> to the absolute horror of Hill and the onlooking animators who are like desperately trying to get him to stop. Eventually, they have to call Michael Eisner to calm him down to talk this guy (laughs) off the ledge. So Katzenberg agrees that maybe this isn't the time or place to do it, but he says, we are going to fix this. This movie needs to be fixed. So they push it back seven months. This was going to come out in two months. Now it's coming out in 1985. Okay, troubled production.
0: Yeah, slicing up the reel with scissors in the editing bay. That is as troubled as production gets. Yeah, this is all wild. Well, I can see, again, even just from the version that we did get to see, I can see why this was a contentious one. Sam, this is possibly the most metal movie I've ever seen in my life. It looks like an Iron Maiden album cover. It feels like a Black Sabbath song. Was this a conscious decision to reframe Disney then? You're talking about it bringing in adults as well. This is mid-80s. You can't help but think of, I don't know, he-Man, Masters of the Universe, Conan the Barbarian, all sorts of big high fantasy 80s stuff. Was that kind of what Disney were trying to do with this one then?
1: Yeah, there was definitely something in the air. There'd been a lot of what you might call dark fantasy live action movies released around this time, some of which like Conan the Barbarian uh, were big hits. You also had stuff like Neverending Story, Legend, Beastmaster coming out either before or in the same year as this movie. You had quite a few dark, high-fantasy animated films as well coming from other studios, so most prominently you've got Ralph Bakshi's animated Lord of the Rings movie from the 70s, which was a hit. That's definitely been overshadowed by the Jackson films and Lost to the Sands of Time. That was a very successful movie relative to its budget when it came out. You've also got things like The Last Unicorn, even Don Bluth's Secret of Nim, their first feature film, which came out just before... The black cauldron which is it's about rats who live in the garden but the the trappings of these rats world is very high fantasy there's lots of swords and sorcery going on in that film too and that was a critical hit if not a box office smash so you can definitely feel them operating within these cycles these genres that have started to become popular weirdly this is a genre that seems to be more popular among filmmakers than it is among film goers there were only a couple of massive hits out of all of these movies that we're talking about but There was something in the air.
0: There was something in the air bubbling out of a big, dark, spooky cauldron. And I think that is our sign to delve into the film itself. Sam, let's put our snouts in the waters of learning and project a vision of the Black Cauldron for all of our listeners to listen to. I feel like that made as much sense as this film.
1: Okay, so before we really get into discussing the movie, I thought I'd ask you if you noticed any big Disney firsts in this movie. There's a couple of important things that this was the first Disney animated movie to do.
0: Well, we're going to get into this, but there's lots of like weird visual stuff going on in here where it seems like lots of the backgrounds are kind of live action backgrounds melded with like animated characters in the foreground in a way that not that many of the other what well, Disney Animation Studios films have done so far? Obviously, you mentioned Mary Poppins before. That is a combination of live action and animation. But yes, yeah, specifically bits of like backgrounds and certain textures that it's like that looks like camera footage rather than mm. animated stuff. Uh, One of the things I was going to say is that right at the beginning of this film, we get this big, dense fantasy lore dump in a way that we do in kind of a lot of contemporary Disney movies. If you think of Raya and the Last Dragon or Frozen 2, and they start with big, dense mythological prologues. And I guess you've always had that kind of storybook, once upon a time, in this kingdom, there's a princess and she's in the tower or whatever. But this is quite a different kind of intro. So those are a couple of things that just off the top of my head were like, this feels very new for Disney.
1: Yeah, definitely there were some new forms of visual effects being used in this movie. This was, I might as well say it up top, this was the first Disney movie to use computer animation.
0: Yeah, bits of like 3D textures and like proto-CG, I guess?
1: Yeah, so the little boat that they ride off in when they're escaping the castle, that's CG in some shots. The cauldron itself is CG in some shots. Possibly most noticeable is Ilonwi's weird floating orb. Um, I think most of the shots of that use CG. But what I was getting at, it's even before the prologue that you were talking about. It's the very first thing that you see in this movie. This is the first Disney animated movie to use the castle logo the blue logo that we're familiar with with the castle with the when you wish upon a star and the little yeah
0: I didn't even notice because I'm so used to seeing that and I forgot that actually most of the films we've watched so far start with like the Buena Vista logo thing but I'm so used to seeing that blue Disney castle in its various forms I kind of didn't even notice this was the first time we had that
1: wow it's also the first one with closing credits instead of Those opening credits that we've seen, and Squeaks the Caterpillar and all that, you have to wait until the end for us to see who played Gurga.
0: Yeah, you do. And so not only have they shifted that to the end, but yeah, it's like a longer credit sequence at the end in a traditional kind of movie style. Because often, again, the films that we've been watching previous to this, they just end. And because I've already done the credits up top, that's it. The end, end of movie. That's just a little bit of formal shifting around in this one.
1: There's some little illustrations in those closing credits as well in sort of like an illuminated manuscript style, and that's something that is a loose Disney and Pixar tradition that there'll be some interesting, more stylized illustrations that we we'll see during the closing credits instead of just a white text on black screen scroll.
0: yeah. Well, there we go. So we're going to see that every film going forward from this, are we? The, the blue Disney castle with the when you wish upon a star. So we get the Disney logo first up, brand new, first time we've seen it. And then, as I mentioned before, we get this big backstory exposition of what the hell is going on in the Chronicles of Predane, this mythic land. And we have this really beautiful animated shot of the cauldron itself, which, as you say, so that was a CG cauldron. But yeah, there is a kind of sleeping beauty vibe to this, I'd say, partly because of the medieval setting and the fantasy nature, and eventually we get dragons, but it has that, like, gothic quality to it straight away. Everything we're hearing in this prologue is, like, you feel like Led Zepp's going to kick in because you've got the Horned King with his army of deathless warriors. It's setting up some high stakes right from the beginning.
1: I mean, were you following it then? Not at all. I had no yeah, idea no, what was going on. No, no. It was like,
0: <laughs> okay, there's a boring guy and there's a cauldron and if the, if the evil devil dude gets the
1: cauldron, that's bad. That's basically as much as I got. And that's kind of all I needed. It's a mood piece, isn't it? You see <laughs> words like evil and king and cauldron and undead enough, and we, we get the idea. We get that we're supposed to be scared. I mean, there's like there's two evil kings here. There's like an old evil king, and now there's the new evil king. That's too many evil kings. If we're streamlining this thing, you can you can make it like the Horned King made the cauldron, and then he lost it, and it's Sauron again, though, isn't it? Yeah. But like the, the Horned King made the cauldron, and then he lost it, and now he wants it back. You know. But I guess the original king, he's like the face on the cauldron, the cauldron's got the dude's face on, so that's quite cool. I want a cauldron with my face on.
0: (laughs) If anyone here is, I don't know, like a blacksmith or something and and knows what Sam's
1: face looks like, (laughs) please feel free to arrange this. It's it's a narrow list. Uh, Yeah, who makes cauldrons? Do people make cauldrons? How many cauldrons do you think are in construction in the UK right now? Like two?
0: Yeah, probably very few. I feel like everyone who wants a cauldron probably has one by now, or can get a second-hand one. Especially ones like this. This is a spooky cauldron,
1: man. All cauldrons are kind of spooky now, though, right? Like, once upon a time, people just used these things to boil water, and everyone had them in the house. Now only freaks have cauldrons. <laughs> like, if you if you have a cauldron, you're either some kind of evil king or a wicked witch. Like, nothing good comes of cauldrons.
0: Yeah, if you're cooking in it, it's just a saucepan. But if you're doing magic in it, it's automatically a cauldron. But yeah, it it feels like a bit of a sea change. That level of backstory, that level of, hey, we're telling a big epic story here. This isn't just like a typical sort of princess fantasy. This is deep, dark fantasy. As you say, lore is the word. There is a, a whole history of this kingdom and we're just kind of dropping into this part of the story.
1: And yet it very quickly and harshly transitions into actually quite a familiar scene. This lush, like, forest environment with a little thatched cottage in this reasonably complex multiplane shot, more so than we'd seen something like Fox and the Hound, at least. It takes you straight into the world of Snow White, I would say, after this. It's very reminiscent of that.
0: Yeah, that is what I had in my notes as well, that it was very like the idyllic rural setting of something like. Snow White. Typical Disney setting, similar feeling to Snow White, is exactly what I wrote down. So I feel like I'm acing my Disney University degree. It felt like we were back in that world. I mean, even so, uh, something we're going to talk about shortly is how much the visual stuff, like the visual elements of the fantasy and the danger and the horror, is all cranked up in this one to another level. But it's still playing within things that we've seen in Disney films before. So this cutesy village looks... Very Snow White-ish. Uh, there's lots of heading into forests filled with thorny thickets, which is very Sleeping Beauty, and Snow White as well. Uh, again, going into forests where there's eyes and people are being watched and all these things. I can see why they thought this was going to be a big thing for Disney, because it's kind of like classic Disney ideas and images, but taken up to another level for modern audiences.
1: Yeah, I mean, the are heading back into that European fantasy fairy tale world that they haven't really visited since the sword and the stone which was like 20 years earlier and they haven't tackled it particularly well since sleep and beauty which was in 1959 so it is, I think, very deliberately locating us in a recognisable Disney place with this Snow White styling reduction, and it also lulls you maybe into a sense of security because it's like, oh, this is the happy Disney world that we know and love. This, you know, in the movie Snow White, the dwarf's cottage and the clearing in which it stands is a respite for Snow White. It's it's like a little Eden in the middle of this horrific, spooky world where everything's trying to kill her. So that's where we're placed here, which obviously serves to prepare us for the nightmarish stuff that we're about to encounter. Because, I mean, Snow White is dark, of course, it has its moments of darkness, but here it's beyond that in many significant ways.
0: Yeah, come on, let's get into that then. Let's talk about... Because everything is taking place on a higher register in this film. Everything spooky, every kind of threatening creature has really sharp, jagged teeth and they feel very threatening in a way that kind of crosses over, I think, from The Fox and the Hound. We were talking about the finale of that film with the bear and chunks of flesh going flying when people get shot. There is an extra level of that. Obviously, they're playing very much in horror flecked fantasy zone so the look of the horned king he is like a full-on demonic dude skeletal vibes to the max with added devil horns on there there are weird little goblins and like spooky dungeons and you look at the dungeon and it's not just dark it's full of cobwebs everything is cranked up to the max for me i kind of loved that about this because no other Disney film has looked like this. It feels like it's taking place in a very heightened world, to the point that even, like, half the time you look at the sky
1: and it's, like, bright purple, just because it's spooky and weird. I mean, the first time we meet the Horned King, he is a big skeleton guy surrounded by a giant pile of skeletons. <laughs> <laughs> and it's yeah. not like, like, oh, the, the Wicked Queen or Maleficent, they might have, like, one skeleton kicking about. The Horned King has hundreds of skeletons, and... These aren't just abstract skeletons, these are skeletons that used to be people, right? We're reminded of that. Like these are people who are now dead. These are their rotten corpses. We're looking at a hundred corpses in this in this Disney movie. Love that. I love skeletons, Ben. Big, big fan <laughs> of skeletons. <laughs>
0: I'm going to do that at various points because it's just unavoidable that that is the mood. Uh
1: Yeah, that
0: level of danger and threat and, you say, the history to these people. These are these are corpses who have fallen at the feet of the Horned King. Uh, is pretty intense.
1: Oh, but they'll not be down for long.
0: <laughs> no, because the army will awaken. Yeah, I was excited for this one because of it leaning into the fancy horror stuff. Like, uh, I'm a Disney guy, but I'm a horror guy. Uh, I don't go super deep on fantasy stuff, but I I like fancy movies. We're going to talk about Lord of the Rings uh, in a little while. And I very much am a fan of those films. But yeah, I was excited for, for Disney heading into this, knowing that it was going to head into this fantasy horror space. There was one point later in the film that was like a full-on jump scare moment it was the first time i'd seen anything like that in a disney film yeah it's this moment kind of in the middle of the film where Taryn is looking around for elon i think her name is the princess so he's kind of creeping around and you think it's going to be her around the corner and then the, this nasty axe wielding guard pops out instead and that is an actual full-on jump scare
1: in a disney film so were you scared when you were watching this not
0: at all because i'm massively (laughs) desensitized to all horror stuff because of how much i watch it so if something really does get under my skin then that is a good sign that you've made something really spooky but i just thought it was interesting that it was using that language and those rhythms in a way that felt like it hadn't been part of of this kind of filmmaking especially in the disney catalogue
1: you know, actually, we didn't touch on this up top like we sometimes do. You've never seen this before, right? You never saw this when you were a kid? No,
0: I've never seen this film. This is my first time watching it.
1: Yeah. I have weird half memories of this because my encounters with it as a child were I had a picture book of it, which I must have inherited from some kind of older cousin or something. I don't know where I got that from. And I half watched it once on the TV when I was a kid, like actually on the a television channel. And there are a couple of things from this that really, really stuck with me. I don't remember being traumatised in the same way as uh, Fox and the Hound, but there's a couple of images many of them involving skeletons, uh, the rest of them involving little freaks that have uh, really, <laughs> really stuck with me for years. So I think it is, you know, no, this is scary for children. This is scary by Disney standards, even if it's not tingling your spine.
0: Yeah, I mean, even so, I, I enjoyed that milieu, even if I wasn't physically shaking and hiding under a blanket at home. It does that stuff really effectively. Even just, like I said, that the, the use of cobwebs and the amount of lightning in the film that... It's just really atmospheric and it's it feels like it's tapping into stuff that goes way back to even like Nosferatu levels of mm. just of movement of characters and certain lighting choices and environments that feel off-kilter or stretched or distorted to make you feel uneasy. All of that felt like it was in there for me, and then at the same time, as you say, just scary character designs. Like when the Horn King raises his army at the end, one of the skeletons uh, that the skull is all like cracked and broken, and it's like bulging open. Um, so it's not just that it's a walking skeleton; it's a scary skeleton on top of that.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of visual choices here. Like We're talking about those special effects, like computer-generated effects and stuff earlier. There's also a lot of sequences in this where live-action footage is being patched in. Uh, In some scenes, the sky appears to be some kind of live-action smoke effect that's being patched in in the background behind the characters. I couldn't figure out how they did that. There's um, some shots of the cauldron at the end when smoke and mist starts pouring out of it, and that is definitely live-action that's being patched in. The Horned King is rotoscoped. I think quite clearly, there's a, a person behind that, which gives him a very uncanny style of movement. The CGI work on on things like the cauldron and like the orb, they all were partly done for expediency to try and achieve these effects in a quicker and easier way than they could have done with cell animation, but they also mark these things as different. The fact that the Horned King moves in a palpably different way to someone human like Taran marks him out as otherworldly. The fact that the cauldron appears to be existing literally in a different dimension from the rest of the characters in a lot of these shots. The fact that the mist that it spews is so much more vivid and, and moves in such a, an unpredictable way makes it feel like it's something that has arisen from hell itself you know these things are not part of the world that our characters are from and that makes them scary that's how the uncanny works you know
0: yeah it's really towing the line between those two worlds in a way that totally connects with what this film is about and adds this sense of visual unease to it all as well i wonder if at the time some of that visual difference kind of felt really forward-looking and felt really kind of futuristic. And now I feel like you could really see the joins between the live-action skies, as you say, those sort of purpley, wooshy skies, and then the very clearly animated characters. Maybe feels more jarring now, whereas at the time it was probably like, whoa, look at what they've done, but it still looked kind of cool.
1: I think it looks cool. I think there's so many effects in this, and... Abstractions as well, like the moment where the Horn King first teleports. He can't, wait, does he teleport? He appears in a very weird, supernatural way in front of his henchmen when Torrens lurking around in the background. There's some excellent abstractions there, there's some excellent, like, shots of just shapes. That are being used to suggest something and to frighten us and to create this eerie mood and you get that when the cauldron born are being raised as well a lot of theremin on the score seemingly <laughs> that's
0: my theremin impression
1: i mean that theremins obviously it were probably seen as outdated from like 50 sci-fi films even in the 80s but i don't know i think it still gives the horn king this otherworldly quality it's an unnatural sound
0: yeah i mean the horn king absolutely rules He is awesome. He is, for me, easily the standout thing about this film. He is the thing that I will remember from this movie. Just the intensity of that character design. Uh, Like I said, the fact that he looks like Skeletor meets the devil. He has big glowing red eyes. Uh, I feel like the way that his face fills the frames or his body is contorted into frames... It's a really grabby design. You can feel like the animators were having fun with how they frame him in those sequences.
1: The way that he's introduced with this very three-dimensional look and shot of the back of his head in shadow that slowly rotates around to reveal his full figure is striking in a way that you don't... Again, it's something that doesn't look like it's from a Disney movie. It's something that doesn't look like it fits with everything else that we've seen up to that point. John Hurt's voice as well in this is incredible. Again, you, you can't imagine it coming from a human being who would walk among these other characters. (laughs) He fills the frame in unusual ways, and I think his voice fills out the soundscape in unusual ways. It completely dominates it.
0: And you were talking about the otherworldliness as well, and I think that comes across in... I feel like a lot of the fantasy elements of this film are relatively ill-explained or unexplained and one of those things is the horned king's power set he's just got some vaguely ill-defined magic powers but that means that you have shots of him when he's either kind of manifesting or he's around the cauldron and stuff's going weird and it's like he's surrounded by all these like really detailed scratchy fire effects and like these really frightening lightning effects as well that are kind of centered around him. It's like you feel him as the center of the power of this film.
1: But then I think that becomes a flaw as well because... When the Horn King is in isolation, he's very, very cool. When he's commanding a room, when he's giving a speech, when he's raising the dead, he's very, very cool. As soon as he has to interact with another character, it's like, what is this guy about? Is this just a guy? Is this... <laughs> <laughs> it, what, what, what is he up to? Like his henchman, creeper, little freak, he'll just kind of strangle him sometimes, like Homer Simpson. It's like, can you not, like, zap him with something? And then at the end, when he finally confronts Taran. He doesn't seem to pose any kind of physical threat whatsoever. He's just kind of scrapping with him. And he's quite handily defeated in that physical confrontation in a quite definitive way. Gets sucked right into that cauldron. <laughs> and it's like, what it, What can you do? One of the reasons why I don't love Lord of the Rings, one thing that I can never get away with oh, in Lord of the Rings is... here we go, Sam.
0: Here we go.
1: I find it really hard to... Connect to this idea of Sauron and the way that they present them in those movies I always and it's partly because I was a kid when these movies came out, but I was always thinking Why isn't he just a character? Why is there not an actual villain here who could be a cool guy in his own right? But the go too far the other way with the Horned King and I think he could do with being a bit more isolated and a bit more unknowable because as soon as he becomes noble as soon as he comes toe-to-toe with the human characters I think I could take him in a fight, you know, like what's he up to? What's he about?
0: Yeah, you want to say to him in that final confrontation, do you know you're like a seven-foot, eight-foot demon? Use that. This is just some weedy kid who happened to find a magic sword. Uh, And and speaking of which, then, I think the Horn King is the most memorable thing in this film, the most memorable character, the coolest design. Kind of the opposite end of that spectrum is our hero, Taron, who is just a guy... He is fantasy hero, Hero's Journey 101, he's like the least interesting character I feel like we've had probably since Wart in The Sword and the Stone, he's just a boring kinda
1: guy. Uh, the most interesting thing he does is occasionally whinge.
0: <laughs> He's very whiny. He is very whiny. Yeah,
1: but it's the only time he ever rises above just like flat line zero <laughs> is when he whines. You
0: know? It the- <laughs> shows sure, a bit of personality. It's just not a personality anybody likes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a bit of a shame that they have to build this whole movie around him. I don't, you know, I haven't read the books themselves. I've read the Wikipedia for some reason. I can't really pick out on anything interesting that they could have drawn on from those, but you know give him some kind of personality we've had some interesting disney boy protagonists you know like mowgli or like um peter pan these are like children and they're basically likeable but they also have personality traits that go a bit further than that taran has nothing Uh, He is defined primarily in relation to his support and cast, who are also somewhat hidden Miss, shall we say. I mean, uh, because that's the thing as
0: well. Not only is Taryn not that interesting, but I felt like Elonwe is a mixed bag, right? So she is the princess character who comes in halfway through this film. Uh, And on the one hand, like the first thing that she does is come in and sets Taryn free after he's been captured. She has more agency than pretty much any female character we've seen in any of these Disney films, especially when you think of princess characters. She gets bits of things to do, but at the same time, Taryn says all sorts of horrible things about her. She kind of just follows him around. She's just got a floating magic orb that then disappears for the second half of the film, and you don't know why. She deserved better. She was a promising character who didn't really get as much to do as she could have done and was just in service to this really boring,
1: whiny boy. I mean, she's a character that is worth discussing. She is technically the fourth Disney princess. She's not part of the brand as we know it today, which is interesting in and of itself. Why is she being left out? Is it purely because no one's ever seen the Black Cauldron, quite possibly? <laughs> But she is the fourth Disney princess, the first since Aurora in 1959. Her princessness is dressing, though, isn't it? Like, it's, we're told that she's a princess. We don't see her princessing at all. She might, as, if, if she wasn't a princess, literally nothing about this movie would change. But she is also the first Disney princess with any sort of personality. She's smart. She's sarcastic. She argues with Taran, which, is, you know, Snow White doesn't argue with anybody, really. Those other princess characters just get on with it. She has positive and negative traits, and this means that she predates the more self possessed princesses like Ariel, like Jasmine, especially, who people point to as watershed moments in the development of the princess archetype. And you know, we've got quite a bit of that here with Alonwe, but yeah, she's very underserved. Like other members of the supporting cast, there were scenes with her which were cut. Um, which I think were to the film's detriment, and then you know, if we're comparing it to the other princesses as well, she also has this affinity with like domestic work. She's the character who stitches up, flew the flams, pants, and stuff like that. <laughs> uh, yeah. In in the book, she's got more agency. She's got major subplots of her own. She is the descendant of a great evil sorceress, and that's kind of part of her destiny. So there's stuff that was elided here. Yeah.
0: If only the Black Cauldron had hit big, and we would have got. The story of we and her grandma Maleficent, or whatever that would have been, uh, well, it could exactly. have been more there. Yeah, that's the thing. I did feel like there was promise in that character, and it did feel like a move ahead from previous, especially female protagonists in Disney movies. You're right. It's interesting to think of her as a bridge heading towards Ariel and Belle, and you know all of the uh, princesses we grew up on in the '90s era. You mentioned Flute de Flam. Flute of Flam. Uh, who again he was a bit of a flat line for me. His one thing is that he's got a comedy lute uh, that does the same string plucking gag several times in the film. He did not do anything for me. Are you a fan of that character? No.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he seems to be the character who had the most stuff cut. So he, weirdly enough, so he's played by Nigel Hawthorne, who was a legendary British television comedian from Yes Minister, etc. He is a funny guy. A lot of the things that were cut from this for time seem to have been like wisecracks, like sarcastic comments and stuff that that character makes, making him more of a comic relief character and in a way he uh, would be a bit more appealing than the, the comic Relief character who we're really saddled with in this movie, who I feel like we've been dancing around a little bit. I feel like there's a little freak in the room who we've, we've just been trying to avoid, and I think we need to talk about Gurgi It's too soon.
0: It's too soon. We've got the less interesting characters are out of the way, but there is a little handful of freaks and oddballs, and I want to save Gurgi for
1: last. We've got to build up Fair to Gergi.
0: You, you don't go straight for Gergi, Sam.
1: All right, okay, I can accept that. You have that. to build up to Gergi. The movie doesn't build up to Gergi.
0: <laughs> the movie goes full Gergi, like 20 minutes in. It's like, wah, Gergi. But listeners, you're going to have to wait a little bit longer for the Gergi chat you've been waiting for. I'm even going to skirt around the other character that I can't wait to talk about. And first, who was the little goblin freak?
1: <laughs> oh, that's, that's Creeper. A
0: creeper. Ah, Creeper, (laughs) Uh, looks like the Green Goblin from the Spider-Man comics. He's got a green skin and he's got a little purple hoodie. That is the look of the Green Goblin. He was a little odd bud. He had one eye and he just was creeping around, living up to his name. That moment where he strangles himself so the Horned King doesn't have to do it.
1: Yeah, pretty good. Disney henchman, couple of funny-ish lines, but he's he, he's flavour, isn't he? Mm-hmm. He gives the Horn King someone to talk to, which is always an important function for these henchmen and sidekick characters, and he provides a face for the Horn King's operation in contexts where they're trying to avoid giving us too much Horn King too soon. I think he's also very Smee-esque. I thought in the way that the henchman the actual soldiers don't seem to have any respect for Creeper, uh, even though he seems to be the official, like, second-in-command here. They... they, who who is this guy? Little goblin guy? (laughs) Why would we take orders from him? Nobody likes Creeper. But he does provide... I think he's a generally creepy guy, because he does seem quite unhinged in a way that to me is quite upsetting and this was one of the images that stayed with me throughout my life after having watched bits of this movie uh, on tv was the moment at the end when he's escaping the horn king's castle on the back of a Gwythent which are the dragon-style creatures in this movie, and he's completely lost his mind after the death of the Horned King, and he's got... Is it his shoes? And he's put his shoes on his head as if they're the horns, horns. and he's like laughing like a maniac, trying to embody the Horned King in a way that he wasn't able to during the Horned King's reign, and just really disturbing (laughs) imagery, I think. I think it's meant to be funny. Something about that little guy having that little breakdown (laughs) is upsetting to me.
0: This whole thing was an origin story. It was a Creeper origin story.
1: That could have been the sequel. Yeah. A Creep-wool. <laughs> oh, yeah. The Black Cauldron, the Creep-wool.
0: <laughs> everyone was asking for it. And by everyone, I mean us two, like 35 35- However, many years later, how many years since 1985? Nobody knows. That's science. Yeah, I feel like uh, for Creeper and for another character we're going to talk about shortly, we need to introduce the idea of the TDLF.
1: Yeah, it is important, isn't it?
0: So TDLF stands for Truly Disgusting Little Freak. And this refers to one of my favorite tweets of all time. I think it might have been Zach Dunn who originally tweeted this. And this is a tweet that Sam and I think about a lot talk about a lot have dug into extensively the tweet is this golem dobby there was a time when buying a ticket to the movies meant you were about to see a truly disgusting little freak clearly that time was specifically 2002 the year of chamber of secrets and the two towers but that is an amazing tweet And the category of a truly disgusting little freak is a very specific niche within movies, within fantasy, and we've discussed at length, Uh, we don't really have time to go into it now, but other characters who may be considered truly disgusting little freaks, Creeper, I would say, TDLF, and when we get to Gurgi, and we're not ready for Gurgi yet still, (laughs) Gurgi is a full-on TDLF. Would you say...
1: Yeah, I think it is really important to introduce that. It's a major part of our social lives and has been for (laughs) about a year and a half. We have a group chat with several other people in it. And whenever anyone encounters a truly disgusting little freak, we'll let the group chat know. Sometimes we need to have a discussion about whether they qualify we'll pass judgment. And uh, yeah, creeper, no question about it. (laughs) Uh, Disgusting check, little check, freak, triple check.
0: There's no question about it. Well, before we get on to Gurgi, I promise gurgi is coming, but we have to talk about We have to talk about Hen Wen. Sam. This movie.
1: Yeah.
0: More I can't I'm in I'm incoherent. I can't even talk about this character. This is a film in which the MacGuffin is a psychic pig. And I cannot stress enough how lacking cinema has been for so long in films that center on a psychic pig. We need more of them. There has not been enough psychic pig movies. This was a huge deal. And I texted you when I watched this film last night with like basically my whole family. (laughs) That was a fun trip. When the film started, as soon as oh, we meet we meet Taryn, Well, we've got the cool like backstory thing, and then we meet Taryn, and he's a bit boring. But then we see that his job is looking after this pig, and this pig is so cute. She has big round eyes, and she's all, oh, she's just adorable. And I said to you, if anything bad happens to this pig, I'm gonna be deeply upset. And Hen
1: Wen only got cuter as the film went on. She is so sweet. Uh, she comes very close to mortal peril, though. Creep is gonna get her with like a fiery poker. Who could do that? yeah freak that's who
0: lots of piggy peril she got swooped on by the dragons there was that really interesting shot where one of the dragon things mm. is like swooping down on her and um the camera if you will is positioned behind the claws of the dragon there's a real sense of speed to that shot as well as it's swooping down about to capture our beloved little hen Wen.
1: yeah this is a disney movie where a pig and a dragon reenact the north by northwest plane chase almost shot <laughs> <Yes>. the <shot. laughs> Wow. What more do you want?
0: How did this movie not become a massive smash? <laughs> I mean, there are many reasons. But yeah, Henwen was great. Oh, although that moment <laughs> where Taron's like, gotta save the pig everyone's trying to get the pig i need to get the pig to safety and he pushes hen Wen off the top of that turret of the castle hen Wen falls for a long 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 time before hitting that water we all of us watching the film all went oh when we realized how (laughs) steep
1: that drop was gonna be now i know neither of us are professional assistant pig keepers so he's got (laughs) a bit more experience in this area yep I would not be confident enough that a pig could survive, like, a five-story drop into a flowing river. I would not take that leap.
0: (laughs) No, that seemed extremely dangerous to me. It's just the pure power of Henwen that she survived that. Maybe her psychic powers also, I don't know, created some kind of barrier as she hit the water. There's got to be some explanation, something supernatural. Why does the pig have visions? Like, I love it, but I, there's uh, that's
1: just such a random element of this for me. It's magic. <laughs> <laughs> that's the magic of cinema. Why does Ilonui have a floating orb? <laughs> Why does Fleur de Flam have a harp that breaks a string whenever he tells a lie? Why is anything? It's magic. It doesn't matter.
0: <laughs> to be fair, all of these were legitimate questions I had watching the film. <laughs> I could have done with some answers rather than all of those things being kept ambiguous. <laughs>
1: Or ambiguous, maybe. <laughs> ben, is Henwen a Disney-versity legend?
0: I am going to say, and this may be controversial, I don't think there are any Disney-versity legends in this film. Because there are characters who we are clearly going to be a bit obsessed with. Henwen, Creeper, and yes, Gergi. We will talk about Gergi, I promise. But I feel like they all have more substantial roles in the film. They have proper parts to play that mean they don't have that Uncle Waldo thing of just like swaggering in for a scene and stealing the show, or Bill the Lizard who is just there for two minutes and then we just want to know entirely what his story and what his deal is. So I think there are characters in this who would achieve Disney Disneyversity legend status, but they're too much main characters to be those kind of minor figures who we very quickly grasp onto. What are your thoughts on that?
1: My rejoinder to that is that Henwen's relative prominence in the movie is counteracted by the fact that the movie is the Black Cauldron and that within (laughs) the broader annals of Disney characters Henwen's notoriety is several rungs below that of someone like Uncle Waldo or Bill the Lizard on the basis that no one knows what this movie is or that it has a pig in it.
0: So you're saying that basically henwen deserves this henwen deserves her time in the sun and she didn't get it when this film came out because nobody saw it and nobody really has seen this film since and if we have a chance to put this psychic pig on a pedestal we should take that chance
1: i think so i mean little toot and willie the whale are mm-hmm. disney versity legends founded they members they're the main characters of their respective shorts. yep but okay. no one knows who they are because it's a short in a package film. So I think Hen Wen, on that basis, has to be in there.
0: You've won me over. It didn't take that much persuading because this <laughs> character is so great. And to have this character who is so cute in the middle of everything that is so horrific in this movie, I think it's official. Should
1: we make it official? Make it official.
0: <laughs> Hen Wen, the latest admission to the Disney vs. Legends canon. Welcome. Welcome, Hen Wen. You adorable little pig. Oh, okay, let me just uh, let me just look at the time. Let me just see what time it is. Uh, oh, it's it's Gergi time. Damn, it is gurgi time. We've waited long oh, enough. Thank we God. need to talk about Gergi. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. Oh, if I'd have known, I would have rewritten that whole song. <laughs> to be about Gurgi I'm there still
0: yeah you've got time you've got time so I know you've all waited long enough for this what I want to say is that for me the Gurgi conversation is intrinsically linked with this wider conversation about how much of this film to me as a person in 2022 was like this is just Lord of the Rings but with a few things different because not long into this movie our hero has been sent off from his idyllic country village life by an older man to go and look after this MacGuffin and shield it from the harm of a dark lord sorcerer and then this kind of weird, I mean let's just call it like it is, (laughs) Gollum-esque character strides in Smeagolian in all his smeagleness and says I can show you the way to the place you need to go he talks in a funny way he uses language in the exact same way as Andy Circus's Golem. how did nobody get sued over this uh, what what is the connection here
1: Well, okay, so this series of novels came out in the 1960s in the wake of Lord of the Rings, and that seems to be known. In all the writing about the Black Cauldron from the time, people talking about the Predean novels said, oh, it's Lord of the Rings for a slightly younger audience. It's Lord of the Rings for kids. Gergi's a big part of that. He does resemble Gollum. He does talk a bit like Gollum. A lot like Gollum. But this is an archetype that goes back... A lot further than Gollum. Like, Gollum is heavily inspired by Caliban from Shakespeare's The Tempest, for example. truly custom little freaks go back a long way. there's uh, <laughs> Tolkien didn't invent the TGLF, okay? <laughs> TGLFs run right through the mythologies of, of the ancient world, and Gollum is just one of the most noteworthy. If anything, maybe Andy Serkis nicked his specific speech patterns that they use in the film from. Gurgi. Can we try and convey how Gurgi talks?
0: We're
1: going to get our Gurgi on. Um... Let's see who can do the best Gurgi. I've got a line written out here of something that Gurgi says that I find particularly upsetting. Okay, give us Um... a little
0: Gurgi line and then we can try and
1: Poor miserable Guggie deserves whackings and smackings on his tender little head. Was <laughs> that, that accurate? That is
0: Saying Also, what he's saying there is extremely dubby. If yeah, we're talking yeah, about the TDLF uh-huh. scale. Yeah. But, do you know what? I, I don't even think I can compete with that. You <laughs> did that impression thinking oh, I was going to try and do one afterwards, but I think you just nailed that so much <laughs> yeah, that well. I would be foolish to even try.
1: That can cast me in the sequel. Let's go. Oh, genuinely, Disney, if you're listening, I've never... This is 100% true, Please cast me as Gurgi. Can we start a campaign? <laughs> Sam for Gurgi. In the, in the creep
0: pool that is just Gurgi and Creeper.
1: That's it. Yeah. It's just
0: those two characters return. We don't need Taryn back. Maybe Henwen Gergi can join in if she wants. summer
1: vacation. <laughs> Uh, he always says, munchings and crunchings. That's a thing that he says a lot. That's what he calls food. Yeah. And I hate him. I hate, like, look, we need to break this down. I hate them. I don't know. <laughs> we haven't made that clear. We're talking about him kind of objectively. I thought you loved gurgi No. I <laughs> I like that he exists, I'm obsessed with him, (laughs) I can't stand the guy, he's foul, the way that he flirts with Alonwi, the way that he he eats an apple and then gives it back like the core to Taran, he's like, oh there you go, it's all your apple, munchings and crunchings, and then he's like licking his fingers and drooling everywhere, he's disgusting, I hate the way that he talks. Again, we've done this before. I've invoked the name that I'm about to invoke. No one full well. We don't have time to get into it on the podcast. No one (laughs) else will know what we're talking about. Fuzzbucket. Gergi is a Fuzzbucket.
0: He does radiate Fuzzbucket energy. Fuzzbucket confirmed TDLF for anyone keeping score. Wow. Yeah. You're blowing this whole thing wide
1: open. He's disgusting. I don't want him. I don't like him. No. He just comes in so early on. He's cowardly. He'll do anything to save his own skin. Why is he even there? Why is he helping Taron out? He's kind of obsessed with him in a creepy way. He calls him Master, which again, yeah. big Gollum vibe. Maybe it's just because we've been trained to distrust characters like Gollum. Uh, but like Gollum, Gurgi. Effectively saves the day by plunging to his death in this case you right. find out you have to someone has to willingly Sacrifice themselves to the cauldron in order to destroy it and Gurgi decides to do that because he says uh, Something to the effect of yeah, you don't kill yourself master master has lots of friends. Gurgi has no friends <laughs> He's becoming a bit um Jared Leto in House of Gucci at the end there. <laughs>
0: I was going to say you went a little bit almost <laughs> Jar Jar then. Jar <Jar-jar> Jared Leto. <laughs> what a combo. Jar
1: Jar, for those keeping track, he's too tall to be a TDL life unfortunately. Yes, he's not little enough. Oh, God.
0: What do you think about Gurgi? I was entertained by him and just found him. moment. No. I totally get where you're coming from. And I think I felt all the feelings you felt while also just being amused and bemused that this character was in this film, was doing all the things he was doing. Yeah, Gurgi, I didn't love him, I didn't hate him, I was just overawed that he existed.
1: (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised if those children running screaming from the early screens of Black Cauldron were out there well before the the skeletons popped up. Because of of Gurgi. I hated him as a kid, that's what I'm saying. When I was a kid, it was Creeper who freaked us out more than the Horn King did. But Gurgi was the worst. I just, I can't, I'm really not expressing this very well. I apologise for that
0: but we feel what you're feeling, Sam. It's coming across in all the words you're not saying as much as the ones you are.
1: (laughs) Yeah, words I'm not saying, like, good and likable
0: and (laughs) funny. Can I just say, it's just popped into my head again, thinking about this film, that I think it's in the scene that Gergi comes in, but Taron has gone off on this journey, right? And the one thing is, like, Taron, look after the pig. The pig is the best. She's a magic pig. Look after the pig. Two minutes after setting off on his journey, he gets distracted and instantly loses the pig. But then I think that's why some of the frustration comes in with Gurgi because we're like, oh no, he lost the pig, where's Hen Wen? When Hen Wen is not on screen, audiences should constantly be asking, where's Hen Wen? Gergi comes in, and Gurgi's like messing him about, and he's like, oh, I can show you where she's gone, but oh, you got the shiny apple, and we're like, Gergi, you don't understand the significance of this. We need to find Hen Wen. Uh, so I feel like the frustration with Gurgi begins
1: early on. Yeah, because we've replaced something very cute with something that is the opposite of cute. <laughs> Gurgi, that's up- part of the reason why he's upsetting as a character, because he's a manipulative little shit. Gurgi knows that Taran, much like the audience, wants Henwen back, so he effectively pretends he knows everything about where to find this pig. He's stringing him along. He only makes himself useful at the very last minute, and by that point, it's too late to redeem his character. I don't care for him. No. He's not a Disney-versity legend. He's not, because he's horrible. Are we
0: starting a canon of Disney-versity abominations?
1: <laughs> <laughs> disney abominations.
0: If that does become a thing, we have our first inductee.
1: We need a couple more. If we get a couple more, they can join Gergi in the Hall of Shame.
0: <laughs> I mean, I think one of the things with this film, now we've got to leave Gergi behind. Gergi, stay. No, Gergi, don't follow us. Gurgi, please, no. Uh, Gergi is behind us, threatening as ever. But as we move on through the film, one of the things that's kind of weird about it is that it's very episodic. I feel like, on the one hand, this film really licks along in the first half. It's, like, really propulsive, possibly at the expense of a lot of characterization. But then we get into lots of episodic stuff that feels like it doesn't really connect with the weird snap, crackle and pop Underwater fairy people and the weird booby witches and the people who have been turned into frogs and all of that, which all kind of feels like window dressing because ultimately we get the finale with the cauldron being activated, the Horned King raising his army. It all kicks off in the final reel in a way that makes some of that other stuff that we just skipped over not really matter?
1: Yeah, I mean, it feels like the big booby witches and the the fair folk as they're known, the fairies, that's stuff that is a lot more prominent in the book that they were trying to get into this movie in some fashion. So maybe those characters don't get enough time to... I mean, they're memorable for various
0: reasons. We have not had any Disney films so far in which a character is turned into a frog and then effectively drowned in a busty witch's cleavage
1: with very long lingering shots of said cleavage. (laughs) It was the 80s, guys. I mean, quite, but, you know, not as memorable, but not as narratively essential maybe. Uh, I mean, so the witches help them find the cauldron. The cauldron's immediately taken by the Horned King, and that's when everything kicks off. That's when he raises The Cauldron Born. That is our climax, and it is cool. It's one of the coolest scenes in a Disney movie that we've seen so far. It's so badass. That's when you start to get the live action missed effects. That's when you start to get some crazy visual abstractions. That's when you start to get skeletons emerging, bathed in maleficent green light, ready to storm the kingdom and implicitly murder a whole bunch of people.
0: Ah! <laughs> yeah. yeah when uh when the Horn king's like now i call on my army of the dead inside i was like let's go man yeah let's do this blood is spewing from the cauldron it gets very raiders of the lost ark all the kind of glowy lights emerging and and the spirits kind of coming out of it
1: it was super raiders well you say raiders of the lost ark this is one of the scenes that was most heavily cut and this is likely the scene that uh, katzenberg was taking the scissors to in the editing booth at that point and you can tell where the cuts come because the score skips there's noticeable if you know where to look there's very noticeable jumps in the score so
0: he literally just snipped those bits out there there wasn't <laughs> yeah. any like oh let's smooth it over it was just like no one's gonna notice unless yeah. you're sam summers in however many years time
1: so, one thing that we noise cut, because we have the animation cells for this, is they start melting people. Oh, the, yeah. The, the human guards, who in this we see run away, some of them uh, do not make it out and are melted in a very graphic, I would say more graphic than Raiders of the Lost Ark style.
0: Wow, because uh, the, the face melting in Raiders is graphic face melting.
1: Well, this is... Uh, In my learned opinion, this is worse. Um, This is gnarly. Can it be seen somewhere? Is it on Disney Plus? Is it on YouTube? It is not on Disney Plus. There's people on YouTube who very diligently tried to reconstruct some of what was taken out. The images are out there. I'll definitely tweet them because it's, it's cool as hell. Another weird addition is that the skeletons in this initially had kind of like either no eyes or terrifying realistic eyeballs rattling around in their skulls there's footage of that out there as well and what they've done if you watch this back is they've colored in their eyes to give them very comical green kind of cartoon eyes which makes them a little bit less scary i still think this is a scary scene but there's something about it that feels a bit acclimactic. the emergence is very cool but then nothing really comes of that because the Cauldronborn leave and start marching towards the kingdom to mess shit up. But then the conflict is between Taran, the human boy, and the Horned King, who, as we've said, just a guy. What we need, and I'm sorry to just bring this back to Lord of the Rings again, what we need is Aragorn's army. We need someone, ideally many huge armies of people, Fighting the cauldron born so that we have stakes for what's going on in the castle Because, okay, the cauldron born are eventually going to get out of town and start killing people But we, we don't see any of that They're still halfway out the castle when Gergi jumps in the cauldron and, and destroys them We need some kind of tension, and the way to do that would be with a big battle. we see humans about to be killed by the Cauldron-born knights and stuff who were just saved in the nick of time when they all fall down dead.
0: Yeah, I I agree with you, because like you say, the emergence is really cool, and some of those shots of the skeletons, again, you're talking about bits of effects and stuff that the skeleton warriors are kind of semi-transparent they feel like they're some of them are in a kind of fuzzy focus or they're like almost duplicated but almost like you would do with an old school 3d effect where you have one for each eye but they're obviously just both normal colors instead of green and blue so the whole thing just has this really uncanny quality but then they march out of the castle and it kind of doesn't mean anything anymore uh, and you just get that confrontation between Taran and the horned king Which, yeah, is not as exciting as the skeletons emerging from the cauldron.
1: Yeah, we don't see what they can do, especially when the scenes of them killing some of the guards have been taken out. We don't see how dangerous these things are. Maybe you can just knock their heads off and then they're done, you know? We don't know. And talking about stakes, we don't really see any other people, any other humans in this world outside of our, like, three main characters where is everybody and this we get this a lot in disney movies the worlds don't feel very populated because more people means more designs means more animation time it's hard to do especially big battle scenes in ralph bakshi's animated lord of the rings he just filmed live action actors for the battle scenes and put filters in front of them to make it vaguely look like animation it's very strange to see it's hard to do but they don't make any attempt here and i think that would have helped the movie a lot if we get a sense of a bustling fantasy world that these characters inhabit like in lord of the rings sorry to keep bringing that up or liking the predate novels as well but instead it there's no stick, so there's no real climax What
0: we do get, though, is a really cool ending in terms of the the insatiable hunger of the cauldron uh, eventually sucking everything into it so that the Horned King gets sucked into the cauldron, and that rules. That looked amazing. Again, it was all this orange fire and flame and lightning, and the Horned King, he kind of, like, melts and crumbles and collapses all at the same time, Uh, and then the castle starts getting sucked into it, and the dragon things are getting pulled in. The whole castle is exploding in flame and collapsing in on itself it's very very gothic and over cranked big fantasy explosion at the end which I thought was a pretty cool sort of visual note to end on but that is not the ending of the film because where's Gergi where is Gergi Gergi sacrificed himself to the cauldron but we have a coda effectively because we can't leave that film with Gergi dead come on really <laughs> as much as Sam would want to we get a trade with the booby witches again and gurgi is alive
1: gurgi's alive sam how do you feel about that well he's dead to me <laughs> <laughs> until such a time as i can betray him in a film <laughs> he's dead to me they trade the cauldron for gurgi with the witches
0: I just I mean we don't have time to get into this but what the booby witch was like had this line where she goes I adore forceful men what was happening in the 80s god but they trade the cauldron for Gurgi's life it feels like a mistake to me to give that cauldron to the witches
1: well it's it's been neutralized it's a it's a useless cauldron now Gurgi took the plunge
0: yeah but I feel like that could quickly be undone by three weird witches
1: I mean, the witches are kind of neutral in this, I think. Like, they're not evil. They're not on the side of of, of good or bad. They're just, they're just like cauldrons and swords. There's a, there's a magic sword in this movie that we've not mentioned <laughs> oh, <yeah>. once.
0: And <laughs> <laughs> there I was talking about, oh, we'll maybe talk about Star Wars at some point. All I was going to say there is that Taron, he gets this magic sword, the sword starts glowing, and he starts swinging it around. And it's like, it, he is a very, he's a character who, if Luke Skywalker was just really boring... That is who Taron would be. And yeah, he starts swinging around a sword that starts glowing. And that felt like, hey, eight years after Star Wars, Disney were probably trying to tap into something there. Who knows? Maybe down the line, Disney and Star Wars had a future together. Spoilers. But that all happened. That was a thing. (laughs) What they traded the sword for something earlier. On. I mean, the plot of this film was all over the place. Don't blame it's us for the swapped the, the, the sword
1: for the cauldron. The, and then sort of the and cauldron. Then later on they swap sort of the cauldron for gurgi. gurgi And at some point they seem to cast a spell on Taran that makes him go through puberty because his voice completely changes after that <laughs> scene.
0: Oh, that's the uh, hero's journey for you, Sam, from boy to man. I like that they introduce or use the fantasy trope here of like you bring back a character who's dead And then you cry on them a bit, and the power of your tears brings them back to life.
1: The Ash Ketchum rule. (laughs) Yes, yeah.
0: But this film doesn't end with Gergi. This film ends with the true hero of the story, a little psychic pig I like to call Hen Wen. Because for so long in this film, it's very pig-heavy at the start. Then the pig gets pushed off the tower into the water, and we don't see the pig for a long time. And then all the skeletons are coming out of the cauldron, and there's a big fight. And the whole time, I'm like, Where's the pig? Give me the pig. And so they end the film. I mean, is the whole film a vision from Hen Wen? The ending of Taran's story is actually Hen Wen seeing Taran's destiny, and the old man basically, you might as well say,
1: That'll do, pig. That'll do. Hen Wen directed the movie, effectively. She (laughs) put her nose in a little puddle. And then she caused all of these images to manifest for the entertainment of the old wizard and grouchy Smurf, who's also there.
0: (laughs) Hen Wen, filmmaker extraordinaire. She has the vision in every sense. She is the best thing about this movie. Oh, I love Hen Wen so much. She's a good pig, Sam. She's a good pig. I feel like she deserves her own theme tune. And I feel like it would go a little something like this. Hen <laughs> <when>. <laughs> I did not know you were going to do the name there, and that was perfect. Oh, Hen Wen, that one's for you. Okay, so that brings us to Discarded, the section of the show where we look back at the original tale the filmmakers drew from and dig up all the dark, weird stuff that didn't make the film. Sam, is it possible that this gets more intense in the Predain novels than it does on the screen?
1: I actually don't think it does. I mean, I haven't read them because no, but (laughs) I have read, as I've said, the Wikipedia synopses and there wasn't any like crazy dark metal stuff that they seem to have left out. There is a different villain in the books who sounds almost as if not more intense as the Horned King. The Horned King in the books is like the Enforcer character, and he gets killed at the end of book one. He's sort of like the Witch King in Lord of the Rings. He's like the the lieutenant of the villain's armies, but the actual villain is called Aron Deathlord. Oh, that's pretty extreme. That's pretty cool. And it's a great name, but they went with the Horned King as the villain for the movie because, and this is a quote from producer Joe Hill, he would make a good animation character mainly because he had horns sticking out of his head. He was right.
0: It's a good look. we talked <laughs> it about is. how they used the frame of that character in a really effective way. I think they made the
1: right call there.
0: He is, uh, to use an analogy, no one's going to like the Steppenwolf to dark side
1: yeah that's about right he has horns as well as horns Wolf as well Has horns in in the justice league so other characters are omitted notably gwydion who's like a warrior prince he's the Aragorn character in this so he would have added that's like he's the guy who's actually leading the war leading the search for the cauldron he's the character who fights the armies while taran's taking care of the the cauldron that makes sense right even though a lot was changed, nothing, like, majorly significant that would have made the movie a drastically different experience was left out, I don't think. Apart from the fact that Gurgi is described, from what I can tell, more as just, like, a hairy man. <laughs> <laughs> a fuzzbucket type. <laughs> yeah, I'm just thinking, like, more of, like, a shirtless Robin Williams type.
0: <laughs> oh, but instead they thought, hey, no, we've got a better idea, let's make him small and furry and weird. Uh, was there anything else
1: that was, like, cut from the film itself? Yeah. So, at one point, this is also something that was cut from the cauldron Born sequence. There was an idea that this movie would include the first hologram projected in a conventional movie theatre.
0: What does that mean?
1: That means that as the cauldron Born were born from the Cauldron, as they emerged and started melting people, they would also begin to walk out of the screen and into the audience in hologram form. <laughs> oh,
0: no way. That would have been amazing. Can you imagine? Kids would be losing their minds. They'd be like, we're going to get melted.
1: This was next because it would be eye-wateringly expensive, but they looked into it. Oh, it was wow. on the table.
0: They should have found the audience, if there was anyone alive who first saw that train pulling into a station film where all the audience was terrified that the train was going to burst out of the screen, uh, they should have got someone who watched that, To then watch that version of the Black Cauldron, and then at the end just lose their minds when they were like, I told you, it comes out of the screen. Could use that technology on the ring. Oh, so many applications.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, that's pretty much it. Like I say, a lot of flue the flam content alighted, some some grisly deaths. Uh, there's a scene where one of the dragons knocks Taron on his face and he gets up and he's like bleeding from the mouth and that was going to be a bit more graphic initially as well. Because, uh, again, that's a moment where it's like, oh, character's bleeding from the mouth in a Disney movie, the hero, that's pretty hardcore, so there's going to be a bit more of that. but um, I mean, it's hard to yeah. get much
0: darker than what we got, it sounds like.
1: Yeah, I mean, there were there were things in there, but nothing earth-changing.
0: Okay, so then, how did people react to this film? What, what did critics say at the time about The Black Cauldron? Was it a collective outcry of, what the hell are they doing?
1: Okay, so weirdly, I couldn't find any contemporary reviews that criticised it for being too scary.
0: Wow, okay, that's really interesting.
1: Yeah, it didn't seem to be a thing on people's minds. The negative reviews mainly chastised it for being too similar to the Disney formula, which seems crazy in retrospect, because a bit like with Fox and the Hound, yeah. like, what was that about? People really saying... I don't think anyone was saying this was too, like, sweet and saccharine or anything, but too Formulaic, this is their most ambitious film since, like, maybe Fantasia. This isn't... It's Formulaic, but it's not Disney Formulaic, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, that's really surprising. Do people seem to like it? Critics seem split. Like, the New York Times pointed out that they were basically trying to serve multiple different masters and f- kind of doing a pretty bad job of, of all of them. So people old enough to recall their delighted at earlier feature animations and not the audience at which this is aimed, nor apparently is it aimed at youngsters who have had a taste of more sophisticated stuff in the Star Wars breed of movies. Uh, Gene Siskel hated it as well, mainly because of Taran, who he called a dullard and a complete drip. And he argued that Hen Wen should have been the central character of the movie. I
0: want to see the Siskel cut.
1: Release the Siskel cut! so roger ebert really liked it though he said that the best of the disney animated features were not innocent children entertainments but blood curdling stories of doom and obsession things like snow white and pinocchio (laughs) kind of fit into that category right so he's saying actually this isn't that much of a departure it's more a return to some of their classical takes on horror and the supernatural so he says, by the end of The Black Cauldron, I was remembering with a shock of nostalgia, the strength and utter storytelling conviction of the early Disney animators. The Black Cauldron is a return to that tradition. And he also says, the key to the movie is in the richness of the characterizations, And the two best characters, I think, are the Horned King and a fuzzy little creature named Gurgi.
0: Oh, he's Team
1: Gurgi. You're not going to go against Ebert, are you? You wouldn't go up <laughs> against Ebert. Look, we've all got to be wrong sometimes. <laughs> So, the LA Times compared it favourably to the work of Lucas and Spielberg, put it in the same breath as your Star Wars, and your ETs, saying that the subtle nuanced motions of these characters will come as a revelation to audiences bored with the medium after enduring hours with the Care Bears and their smarmy friends. Shots fired at the Care Bears, weirdly. (laughs) Shots fired at the Care Bears, weirdly, but appropriately because the Black Cauldron was beaten at the box office by the Care Bears movie.
0: Ooh, okay, yeah, let's get into the box office, because you said
1: earlier on this was a bomb, like a big bomb. The Care Bears movie cost about 1 20th of the Black Cauldron's budget, and it made more money. The Black Cauldron reportedly cost $44 million, the most expensive animated movie ever, and it would retain that spot until The Lion King, ten years later. It was four times the budget of The Fox and the Hound. Wow. That's almost too big to succeed it would have been difficult like if it made rescuers money it would have made back its budget but again cost six times as much as the rescuers did so the rescuers and fox and the hound did well they were the 10th highest grossers of their respective years the black cauldron was the 40th highest grossing movie of 1985 it made 21 million dollars so half less than half of what was spent on it disastrous so now we are once again having conversations like should disney animation continue to exist Ooh, after this point no so it's back on the chopping block again you've got these hollywood executives in who don't know animation they don't understand animation they're looking at recent live action more adult oriented hits for disney like splash and they're thinking what is the point of continuing to spend this kind of money on these movies that cannot make it back and that perpetuates an outdated version of what the disney brand is this is not what Hollywood is about anymore. It's about cool, hip, street-smart movies, and that's not what Disney can produce. So we'll see in the next couple of episodes how and if they manage to turn things around.
0: Okay, then what are your thoughts on this one overall then? Gergi aside, what star rating would you go for for The Black Cauldron?
1: There were points in this movie where I was absolutely loving it. I think it's probably the first half I think is really strong. When Tarun was creeping around the castle and the Horn King gets that really well animated entrance scene Doing some interesting experimental visual things I was having a great time But at 75 minutes it is still too long and too cluttered I'm probably in the two and a half range Because the good stuff is great It's the most ambitious movie since probably the 1940s in many ways And I love to see big swings I think we all love to see big swings But it is just a big miss in a couple too many ways
0: I think I'm slightly warmer than you. I'm gonna go for a three out of five. I actually loved the whole look and feel of this film. I loved Disney going further into that fantasy horror direction and just really committing to how creepy the Horned King looked and all of that stuff was great. But as you say, the plot is baggy even at 75 minutes or just kind of incoherent at points when it gets really episodic in the second half and you just, just start diverting into other random fantasy character interactions. It loses its way a bit which is a shame because the first half is really propulsive I think people kind of maybe expected me to hate this film or to be terrified of it in the Pinocchio sense but I would say it connected in a really different way because this one Pinocchio presents this really like potentially cozy friendly world and you think of Jiminy Cricket and the boy with so who's a puppet and his nose is going to grow and there's a fairy and that's cool and then the stuff that's horrific in that really is just disturbing and surprising and horrifying whereas i didn't find this in any way near as disturbing or strange because just it sets its intentions right from the off of what this film is going to be what the world it's set in is going to be and it commits to that so i really enjoyed that i thought it had a very distinct identity and for that i'm willing to oversee some of the flaws and say yeah. it is it is f- a very flawed but actually really worthwhile disney movie that is my take
1: i mean it's got a really strong unique point of view aesthetic some exciting animation experiments in there But it was cut the ribbons and jeffrey katzenberg and friends aren't just cutting out the dark stuff they seem to be trimming it back to make it shorter there's loads of stuff that's just just cut for time like one-off lines and stuff like that some of which was like load-bearing story material and i don't know why they thought it had to be so short i'm not saying that if they hadn't cut anything it would have been a much better movie but if this was always intended from the start to be like 110 minutes something like that and that could really flesh out some of these characters and give some much needed like backstory and motivation to the plot this could have been so good based on the visuals and the aesthetic they were presented with but it it wasn't to be
0: come on david larry you know what needs to be done Okay, now it's time for Lasting Legacy, because a Disney movie is never just a Disney movie, and in the world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies and more, there is a whole universe out there for each character. Now Sam, as far as I know, there's no like straight-to-DVD spin-offs for The Black Cauldron, but, but I'm wrong, is there anything in the theme parks, is there anything out there in the world beyond this movie itself?
1: So no sequels. In 2016, they announced a live-action adaptation of the books, but no one's ever been attached to it, so it doesn't sound like that's happening, to be quite honest. In 1986, though, a year after this movie came out, it made its mark in Walt Disney World. Because, despite the fact that everyone's had a year to live with Gurgi and has just about managed to scrub any memory of him from their minds, Walt Disney World opened up a restaurant called Gurgis, Munchies and Crunchies.
0: Oh no. Who would actively choose to eat a Gurgis, Munchies and Crunch- I feel sick <laughs>
1: saying that. I feel ill. You get half an apple. <laughs> oh
0: yeah. Covered in fur.
1: It sold uh, chili cheese dogs and chicken sandwiches. So standard Disney restaurant stuff. Gergie's favourite foods. Munchies and crunchies. What an upsetting phrase that <laughs> oh, is. Yeah, Munchies and crunchies, disgusting. Clearly they were expecting Gergie Mania to take off, but it didn't. You know what I mean? They were obviously looking at this thinking, oh, this guy, we can make toys of this guy, restaurant with this guy, walk around character at Disneyland. no. And yet, it stood for seven long years before mercifully being redesigned as Lumiere's kitchen after the release of *Beauty and the Beast*. Thank you, Lumiere, from saving us from having to eat Gurgi's munchies or indeed his crunchies. But that is the extent of the Black Cauldron's presence in American disney parks
0: oh where is he big in the rest of the world is he is he big in japan
1: he is big in not, not gurgi no gurgi is not big in, in japan <laughs> from what i can tell but the movie the black cauldron and particularly the horned king seem to have made a bit of a stamp in japan so in, again in 1986 tokyo disneyland opened an attraction a walkthrough attraction called cinderella castle mystery tour where you go on a little tour through cinderella's castle and as the cast member introduces it oh, you are going to see some fun scenes some magical moments from from the movie cinderella but things take a turn something goes wrong as it so often does in these theme park rides and the villains take over so you signed up for and there is no indication that this is what this is from the outside this is cinderella's castle mystery tour okay and yet it culminates with a terrifying appearance from a gigantic animatronic Haunt king, Black Cauldron and all, and I'm going to read you what he says. Yes, to, to, do it <laughs> to in the, the To the children, yes, the, the, this is what he says to the children who queued up for Cinderella's <laughs> mystery tour. No one can escape from here, and you'll be sacrificed to the Black Cauldron. Oh, Satan's kiln, awaken and resurrect the soldiers of death. The devil's servants, capture those fools and throw them into the cauldron. Don't leave anyone behind. The cauldron wants more bodies. Oh, more bodies. More bodies for the cauldron. Translated from Japanese, obviously. Uh, And then a child from the audience (gasps) is selected to murder him with the magic sword. (laughs) Oh, I was going to say he's selected to be slowly lowered into the cauldron (laughs) as they cry. (laughs) Yeah, just like Gurgi, they made the decision on the basis of who has the least friends. Oh, no. You're going in. No, no, a kid kills him with a sword and they get a medal. And that shut down in 2006, <laughs> which is altogether too long for people to be repeatedly bamboozled by Cinderella Castle Mystery Tour into a terrifying confrontation with the Horned King. That is incredible. Um, but they seem to like him in Japan. There are multiple kind of 8 and 16 bit mickey mouse video games where the final boss is randomly the horned king from japan they just keep throwing him up against mickey as if he's like mickey's nemesis and speaking of video games in america there was also a rather tedious looking 8-bit adventure game for the nes and other platforms but that does make the black cauldron the first disney movie to have a video game tied to its initial release as as part of that rollout obviously lots of the ones i've already covered have had games but this was a big deal and it looks like a really boring thing so I'm not going to play it. If it was a very difficult platformer where you've got to jump on skeletons heads or whatever and fight the Horned King, I would love that but it's kind of a point and clicky thing Yeah, so that's it. That's the Black Cauldron. I I wish there was more though I wish there was more. Even though I didn't love the movie, I think there's enough about it that is unique within the Disney canon that I would like to see remediated more often than it is
0: I think the Horn King needs to form a band with Chernabog and Maleficent. Those three, they need to do something together, that's the ultimate Disney villain
1: collab. That's a good team, that is a really good team, that could be a thing in the parks, like a metal band, We're Like like yeah, is on drums obviously.
0: <laughs> Maleficent on vocals.
1: Oh and the drum, the bass drum is shaped like the Black Cauldron, has like that guy's face on the front.
0: Disney, give us a call, you know where we are. And that is it for this week's class. Join us again for our next seminar as we prepare for more rodent-sized adventures in mystery flick Basil the Great Mouse Detective. Was that the official name here? I know some places lose the Basil and just have the (laughs) Great Mouse Detective.
1: Yeah, in most of the world in America it's the Great Mouse Detective. Here it's Basil, which I prefer.
0: Okay, so Basil, The Great Mouse Detective, is our next movie. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you fancy dropping us a little review, we'll get our good pal Hen Wen to look into your future and find you something nice to look forward to. That may just be more episodes of Disney-versity, but who knows what your destiny holds. Could be something bigger than that. Also, just to say, you can rate us on Spotify now. So if you've rated us on Apple Podcasts, we love you for that. If you also fancy giving us a little star rating on Spotify, that will be super neat. But for now, it's goodbye from Sam. Goodbye. And it's... Goodbye. <laughs> goodies <laughs> and byies. Oh, no. Goodbye, Gergie. Goodbye forever. And it is goodbye from me. Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs And our music is by Nefetz Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram And catch you for next week's class